I'm one of the pastors here at Hope Church. I uh, hope you're excited to be here. I'm not going to ask you to like show that excitement because it's not middle school, but I do hope internally. Do you have that happen? The coach that's like, "Hey, everybody, welcome," and everybody goes, Bleh. "I can't hear you." Gosh, it's frustrating, right? It makes you mad, and maybe that makes you more excited, but it doesn't really help too much to do the pep rally thing. I do, though, hope that this is not merely another item on the list that you kind of came up with for your week. I hope that this is something that you're anticipating. I hope this is something that you're, I don't know, have some emotional reaction to, that you're um, mad about and you want to see something change, or this is something that you were hoping for because... This church, the church that we are representatives of, is a not in any way supposed to be um, innocuous, uh, uh, sleepy, uh, unnoticeable. It's supposed to have verve and impact. It's supposed to have volume. It's supposed to work. And when we've asked whether or not Jesus works over and over again in this series, we've asked it from a couple of different angles. We're asking it from like a truth angle. As the first one is, does he really work in the sense of being true? He certainly saw himself as either true or false. A stable place upon which to build your life and everything else as shifting sand. Sermon on the Mount. Very famous sermon by Jesus, and he finishes by calling himself, and the words that he speaks, a rocky place, a solid foundation, and everything else, shifting sand. Bold statement from Jesus. But he saw himself as true or false. And he saw himself as true. And our culture kind of applies a sort of maybe to a lot of this stuff. No, 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 no. First, he said he does work because he is true. And then we've asked a little bit about how does he work internally in the person? Does he work as an identity for yourself? Does he work for um, behavior change? A lot of people kind of anticipate that being one of the main things that a, a church does, a religion does. Does he work for behavior change? We make the argument that he works because it's not a religion. If you've got in your seats, there should be a gospel versus religion card. We make a big deal about that because the distinction between Jesus and the other ways in which we try to change is stark. But as we come to this last week, I want to ask about whether or not the thing which he has brought into existence works. Does Jesus work as a producer. I mean, you think about these great, incredible sort of industrialists that America has produced over our hundreds of years. You got like the Henry Fords of the world that went out and they saw something and they made it. And then they made it so well. They figured out better ways in which to make it. And we look back on them and we remember them as important. And I drive a Ford. I mean, it's still a company. But very little of what he did is still done the same way. And yet, with Jesus, you have a guy who claimed all kinds of stuff about himself, about truth, about his followers, and about what his followers and his, he uses this word, kingdom has come to do. 
from the beginning with his disciples and then these groups of people that claim to be his followers. You can trace it all throughout history from the point of Jesus on. He has always had people who have said, we are his people doing his work. If we're part of that same tradition, and we are, are we working in the same way? Does Jesus work? It's a legitimate question because as you look out in the culture, you say to yourself, are there problems that the church is fixing? I don't know. Is there still hunger in the world? Well, I haven't fixed that one. Okay, all right, well, uh, just big thing in our city. What about homelessness? No, no, the church hasn't just solved homelessness yet. Okay, all right, well... Let me just keep going down the list. What has the church solved? And if none of those answers come back as done, yep, church did that, then can we ask, does it work? Does the church do what it's supposed to do? Is it, is it effective? Well, part of the way we're going to answer that question is by having the right understanding of what the church is attempting and then having the correct model by which we're going to pursue that priority. To do that, I think Mark chapter 2 does about as good a job as anything else in helping us see how all this is supposed to work. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can flip it open to Mark chapter 2. If you don't, please don't panic. We'll have it on the screen or we'd love to gift you with a copy of the scriptures. But there's just nothing better than the Bible for understanding who Jesus was, what he said, and what he was attempting. These are the original documents. These are people who are followers of Jesus who then wrote about what happened. And in Mark chapter 2, we have this guy, Mark, who's telling us a story about the life and ministry of Jesus that I think is a paradigm shift for us. Here's what it says, starting in verse 2. And many were gathered together, so there's no more room, not even at the door. Jesus had a house. People find out about it. He's got a bit of a thing going. Everybody wants to be where he is. The house is packed. Can't get in. And he's preaching the word. Verse 3. And they came. Who is they? Bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Oh, okay. So there's four guys carrying their friend. They're trying to get to Jesus. They bump into the crowd. They can't get in. They can't even get close to him. So they remove the roof above him. Cheeky. And then when they'd made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, <laughs> This is, this is so good. Jesus in his 30s. Son, your sins are forgiven. We'll talk about why that strikes us as a little odd. And then look here, it strikes them as odd too. Now some of the Pharisees were sitting there questioning their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? I think we could say, like, oh, there's some level of mind reading that's going on there. I don't know. Maybe it's miraculous that Jesus knows what's going on in their heart. But I can say something and I can kind of see on your face when you're like, no. 
And if I'm from here and I'm from you, I can kind of guess why you're going, no. Jesus knows that he made a statement. He knows that it struck them and how it struck them. And so he then questions them. Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man often. He's talking about himself. So that you know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, go home. And immediately the paralytic guy picked up his bed and goes out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. And I think you and I would agree. If that happened this morning, you would go, wow, unexpected. But should it be? I think there is something that's going on in this passage that helps us understand the priority that Jesus has brought into this world for the work of his church and the example, the, the proper example for how we are to go about the work that he's given us. I want us to understand both of those things carefully. And if we do, I think we'll come to something miraculous. So have the proper priorities and have the proper example. First, let's have the proper priority. We have to understand that we are part of a culture that is consistently distinct from the biblical teaching. And it's the same thing that's happened in Jesus' day, weirdly. Jesus comes and he preaches in a place that is just saturated with the Old Testament. He's not running into atheists. These people believe almost exactly what he believes. And yet, as he presents his gospel, he runs into wall after wall after wall. You and I are in the same culture. It's very different, and we're different for different ways, but as we're going to preach this gospel, we're going to run into wall after wall after wall because it's very distinct uh, understanding. See, culturally, and we have adopted this same thing, whether you mean to or not, it's just osmosis. We're just part of it. Culturally, we see the work that we are supposed to do as developing along a couple of different lines. One of them would be pleasure, just making the world a, a nicer place. Two would be the denial of death in some way, making the world a longer lived place for some people. I don't know. I don't want everybody to live a long time. I want me to live a long time. If everybody lives a long time, I'm going to run out of root, run out of food. No, but if I... This is just an age of, of miracles. And so culturally, we, we see the change and the rapidity with which all of this stuff progresses and gets more awesome and more comfortable and more beautiful. And we say, that must be what it's all about. It's hard not to. Talk about fair-weather fans, these people that jump on the bandwagon because the team's winning. Culturally, what's winning is this kind of technological advance. And it's difficult not to cheer for it. We're the beneficiaries of it. I sat in a hospital uh, waiting with my mother for my dad. Uh, he had a heart surgery a couple years back, and they were going to either repair or replace one of his heart valves. And the surgeon came down at the end of the procedure and talked to us like a surgeon does, which is, you know, not the best. Not like salespeople or PR people. He didn't care too much how we felt about it all. 
just got in, went well. Yep. No, no, no. We did a we did a repair rather than a placement. Oh, really? Yeah. Any questions? <laughs> well, yeah. You just looked inside my dad's soul. Can you tell me anything? You know. <laughs> uh, no, surgeon. I guess a uh, question would be, why did you do the repair instead of the replacement? And he said, well. It wasn't so bad that we couldn't do the repair knowing that we may have to repair it again in seven to ten years. But it would be better than the replacement. And I said, well, we're hoping for more than seven to ten years out of the guy. Is there a reason that that was a, a horizon for you? You knew that you'd have to do this heart surgery again, where if you had replaced it, maybe it would have gone 20 or 30 years. And he said, well, the advancement of medical technology is so rapid that if we can do something that's a little bit less invasive, even if it only gives you a little bit of time, then when we actually have to do the repair, who knows what we'll have come up with. And he was saying that when at the time, medical miracles were such that they could have replaced my dad's heart valve with either a robot heart, this is my understanding of it, I don't know what machine it was, but like a robot heart or a pig heart. Somebody had figured that out, and it was an acceptable possibility that my dad would have porcine heart valves. And he was saying, looking at those miracles, meh, let's try and give him a little while longer because who knows what's coming next. That's just in the medical field. You think about the entertainment world. Things are so much more fun than they used to be and so much more explosive than they used to be. You have an iPhone or something like it, my kids, and I made fun of, I don't know if it's making fun, I, I apologize for this afterward, and Josh gave me permission between services, not before the first one, but when we were kids, we used to play, I was staring at Josh during the first service, and he's up here singing, looks fantastic, but there's no hair on the top, and there's a big beard on the chin, and all I could think of was the game, the little thing you used to play with plastic and metal filings, and you used a magnet to draw on a, just a bald guy's head and you could drag the metal filings and give him hair or give him a beard or give him big sideburns. Do you know what I'm talking about? If you know what I'm talking about, you lived in a day, a day and age, where that was acceptable entertainment for children. Think about that. There was a time when your parents said to themselves, I need to distract the kid, give him the piece of plastic with the metal filings and the magnet. That'll do the trick. Can you imagine kids today being entertained with that for more than like 10 seconds? Why? Because today, instead of the plastic with the metal filings and the magnet, we give them a miracle which is cheap and disposable. Do you know you can buy those Amazon Fire tablets in like 10 packs? That's like a Kleenex or something. They're just disposable. And they're miracles, and the kids play with them, and they're not only distracted and playing, but they're learning. They come out of this process, and they know that D goes duh. Why would we not get on the train of advancement, advancement, convenience? Have you backed up a car without a backup camera anymore? Oh, my gosh. feel like you're in the Philistine times or something when you can't put it in, like, why do I have to turn around to go backwards? Medical, entertainment, convenience, it's spinning at an incredible rate, and we're looking at it, we're impressed with it, we're thinking to ourselves, what else is there? This amazing stuff is happening all the time. And when this guy goes to Jesus, 
instead of fixing his legs, he's paralytic, so whatever way he's paralyzed, let's just say he's paralytic. He's on a mat, so he can't walk. Let's say his legs. Which seems like the obvious need, to me at least. Instead, Jesus begins with, Son, your sins are forgiven. How is it possible that Jesus starts there rather than with what to us seems more important, the physical? Well, Jesus understands what we should understand, that there are things that matter vastly more than simply your comfort and your health. There are questions which are vastly more important than simply, am I having fun? Why? Because if this world is all there is, there's not much hope there. I've been reading this um, memoir by a guy named Julian Barnes, and he's very insightful and he's very well spoken, and he's just sort of exasperated by death. Because he lives in this modern world, he doesn't believe in God, and he sees all these wonderful things happening all the time, and yet none of it really matters. This is the quote from his book. And he, he's saying this with a certain amount of emphasis because I think he is exasperated. But it says, he says, It's difficult for us to contemplate fixedly the possibility, let alone the certainty, that life is a matter of cosmic hazard. That its fundamental purpose is mere self-perpetuation and that it unfolds in emptiness. That our planet will one day drift in frozen silence and that the human species as it has developed and all its frenzied and over-engineered complexity will completely disappear and it won't be missed because there's nobody and nothing out there to miss us. Heavy. But do you understand that he understands what Jesus understood? Why does it matter if you can walk if I don't fix your biggest problem? What's our priority? Jesus' priority was to forgive this man's sin. Jesus' main priority was to remove the main barrier between this man and his God. And Jesus was able to do it. Notice the fact that people picked up very quickly that Jesus was blaspheming because it is blasphemy for me to forgive a sin against God. It's stupid for you to forgive a sin against me. Imagine a case where David Edmonds, and I've given him reasons before, but let's just say without a reason, walks up and punches me hard right in the throat. Golly, that would be terrible. And you are watching. And at first, you're surprised. And then very quickly, to fix the situation, you reach over and you grab David by both arms and you say, David, I forgive you. <laughs> what would I think in that moment? I wouldn't be able to say anything because he punched me in the throat. But he punched me in the throat. Why do you forgive him? That's what this looked like to these people. Unless... Your sin was against Jesus. Unless Jesus is God. Because that's exactly 
what he's saying about himself. He's saying the priority here is to give you a relationship with me. And we say it here at Hope Church, to be fully known and fully loved is heaven itself. That's what Jesus says your primary need is. So let's put the priority there. Does the church work? Well, the church should be focused on helping people have that moment with Jesus. Our priority then is not to just fix the comfort question, but to help you have the most essential relationship you can have. A relationship which would then mean that the world is not just going to slowly cool and then wink out of existence with all of us just disappearing. But that the God who did make all and does declare all has said, because of His Son, you can be forgiven. That's the priority for our work. And the proper example for our work is just these dudes. I would love to say that Jesus is our example, and of course He is in so many ways. But here, in the primary work that we are to do, in some ways, Jesus is not the example, because Jesus is in a whole different level. Jesus' main work that He came to accomplish was to accomplish the forgiveness of sin by His death on the cross. That's why we are always celebrating and singing about the cross. What Jesus did was to take our sins upon Himself, put His righteousness upon us. And the only way that He could do that was by paying the penalty that we deserve for our sins. That's what happened at the cross. And because He did it for us, He can gift it to us without any cost. He paid the cost. He can give the gift. Now, you and I can't do that. So in this story, we're not him. In this story, I think we're just they. These four guys who carry their friend to get to Jesus. And that's it. The proper example. We have our proper priority, which is the relationship over the felt need. Felt need's still essential. The relationship is what's most important. And our proper example is not necessarily just Jesus, because we're not coming to die for other people's sins, but the people who are just bringing people to Jesus. Think about what these guys did. These guys said, being healthy is good. Our friend is not. Jesus can help. Let's get our friend to Jesus, no matter the obstacle. A little light vandalism is nothing that should get in the way of getting our friend to the only one who can help. It's probable that they just saw Jesus as a healer and wanted to get them to Jesus. But it also says in the passage that Jesus saw their faith. So while they may not have had a full understanding of the atonement that he came to accomplish, they saw in him their solution. And you and I are called to do nothing more than exactly that. To look at ourselves and to look at God and say, you have done so much for us. Because I am, through this forgiveness, 
fully known and fully loved and experiencing some incremental amount of heaven right now. I want to get that same goodness and health and love and beauty to my friends. And the only way to do that is to get my friends to Jesus. That means that you do have to know and believe. You can't sell what you don't use. It says in John, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work that you believe in him whom he has sent can't do this work without knowing this God. Is that where you are today? Is that maybe some of the problem with the church's effectiveness? Is that we are either unknown to him or we're not accessing that love that he has for us? What is how people change? You want me to spoil the whole book? All it does is take the gospel and just apply it to you. Say, this is already done. This is already true. And to some degree, you already know this. You just have to remember it. To believe it, to reckon on it. And if we do, then experiencing that relationship with the Father, we attempt to bring other people into that good thing. That's it. When we say that Hope Church exists to make disciples and plant churches, do you understand that that's it? <laughs> that's, that's, that's all we're doing. We're just trying to get people... To Jesus. Oh, and make it as easy as we can. We give you those little invite cards. You take one, you hand it to somebody and say, this is something that has made a real difference for me. I think it would for you too. Would you like to come with me to church sometime? Doesn't seem too drastic. But that's what we're doing. All we're doing is trying to make disciples and plant churches. And it will be difficult. And there will be roof removals that will take place. It is going to be gritty. But that's the essential. And it goes so much further than just, is it effective or is it not? Because I think if you attempt the work that God sets you out to do, and you do it with all the, the might and excitement and gifting and skill that you have, as great or as little as it may be, you're going to run into a lot of problems and difficulty and impediments, lots of walls. Apostle Paul was gifted beyond anybody in this room, and yet he was constantly running into walls. How does he keep going? How do we keep going? How does the church continue to work even when it seems like it doesn't? Well... It's because we have a totally different metric than the world. And this is where the world is sneaking back in on us. Our current culture is sneaking back in on us. The current culture is saying, these things matter. These things work if they work. And if you can measure it, if things are more fun, if people do live longer, if things are cheaper, we are saying that we're operating on a whole different scale. That you are being effective and you are being faithful if you're just trying. It's possible that you're going to go out there and do everything you know how to do and you'll come back and we'll try and help you train you up, blah, blah, blah. And you'll go back out there and try to help people know who Jesus is. And it'll just feel like you're not doing much. And yet even there, the church works. Why? Because you're still offering to God a sweet perfume of praise. Praise. 
my children, I have three little girls, they're very young, and they produce more artwork than it's almost possible to believe. I don't know what our paper budget is, but it's insane. <laughs> and they're just all these little coloring books that come from who knows where, and they'll bring picture after picture after picture. This is for you. And what do, they, what do you have to do when they say this is for you? You have to, oh, oh, oh and become this unbelievably impressed person. Because they did it for you, and you love them, and you want them to know that you love them. So you just say, wow, wow, this one. Let me set it over here, because this one is, is good. I'm going to keep this. And if you really kept it, your whole house would just be filled with papers and papers and papers and papers of half-drawn, half-colored, poorly done drawings. <laughs> and yet... We keep buying paper and we keep buying crayons. And it's not because we just want to distract them. It's because as their parent, when they hand us that not well done picture, we love it. <laughs> because if they do great or if they do poorly, the idea that in their little heart, there'd be a moment where they said, oh gosh, I want to give this to dad. It's poorly done, but they look at it and they go, whoa, it's about as well as I can do. What do we do with this? I know. I want to give it to mom. And so we do take it. We don't necessarily treasure it. We treasure them. Let me ask you this. If I serve my wife, stupid stuff, small stuff, whatever it is, if I serve my wife, I move the car seats or I clean something out or I do the dishes or whatever. How many times do you think I serve my wife and don't tell her? Let me ask you again. How many times do you think I serve my wife and then don't tell her? Zero. <laughs> Why? Well, selfishly, I want the credit. But I also want to say to her, I love you. It's not just about having the dishes done. It takes a couple of minutes. It's not a big deal. It's about what I'm saying with the dishes. Now, you can correct me, and I need wiser people all the time to help continue to guide me and guide me as a husband. But I do want her to know I love her. And so when I act in some sort of means of service to her, I want her to see it. Do you see that the Bible is describing our relationship with God, not as employer-employee, and so your effectiveness determines your value? No. The Bible describes our relationship with God as father to child, husband to wife. How all that works, I'm not exactly sure but it's way closer to the last two examples than it is to the productiveness example. My relationship with the Father is being determined by His love towards me. And so what I'm doing for the Father, whether or not it comes out in this just incredible, amazing way, is being received by Him. It's being counted by Him. And it matters. So, does the church work? Well, if you look at it the way that he looks at it, absolutely.
Absolutely. Can it work better? <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, we're going to be working day in, day out to try and get us to experience the fully known, fully loved. So you got something that you actually want to share with other people. And we're trying to help you constantly with the whole make disciples, plant churches thing. God gives the gift to pastors and all these other different groups of people, these people within the church, in order to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So that the church is working. Then, for the other group of people that are hopefully thinking about this, does the church work? Does Jesus work? Yeah. Even if the Christians that you meet are not just blowing you away with their incredible articulation of the gospel. Even if the historical proofs of the resurrection are not immediately convincing to you because you don't get them. I hope you will see that the love that God has for you and that He has expressed to you by giving His Son for you is real. And it works. Because it's true and it works. Our hope is that you will take one more step towards that love, even today, even this morning. Next steps like coming back as we start into 1 John next week. Coming back as you kind of try to learn people's names and meet people and understand a little bit more about the community here. Maybe going to a community group. At least having a serious conversation with yourself or with God about where you stand before Him. Our prayer is that you'll come to know the miraculous as Jesus has come to give it. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we pray right now that you would bathe us in understanding of the truth. Help us to see and understand your Son, the one who's come to forgive, the one who's come to restore and yes, you want to fix our legs, but you're not here to just fix our legs. You're here to bring us to yourself forever into a place where legs always work, where there's never again another tear. Wipe every tear from our eyes, Lord. And death is gone because the old things have passed away. That's what you're doing. I pray, Lord, that you would equip us to follow the example of these men who just believed and did whatever it took to get people to you. Lord, as we do that, that you just build your kingdom and praise your name for your glory. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.